0: Today's episode was taped in front of a live virtual audience from around the world. The podcast has partnered with CGIAR, which is the world's largest global agricultural innovation network around a series of live tapings on the topic of climate security. For today's episode, we are examining the link between food security, climate and conflict. My guests include a leading food systems scientist, Dr. Sonia Vermeulen of CGIAR, and Dan Smith, the director of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI. The episode was taped on June 4th, and in our conversation, we unpacked some of the key linkages between climate, climate change, food systems science, conflict, and peacebuilding. This is clearly a very big topic, but not one you find often discussed in key policymaking circles. So the idea behind this conversation was to identify some key aspects of that relationship that demand further study by researchers and attention from policymakers. The episode kicks off with my brief introduction, followed by about 30 minutes of questions I pose, and then some audience Q&A. The Q&A portion was moderated by Diego Osorio, Senior Advisor, CGIAR Climate Security. So I'll be hosting a total of six of these live tapings in partnership with CGIAR over the next several months. The next live taping will be on June 18th. To register for that event, please follow the links in the show notes or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and sign up for my mailing list. I would love to see you there. And if this episode is any indication, these conversations will prove to be very interesting opportunities for deeper dives into the complex issue of climate security. All right, so here is my conversation with Dr. Sonia Vermeulen, Director of Programs, CGIAR System Organization, and Dan Smith, Director of CIPRI, taped live in front of a virtual audience. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome, everyone, and thank you, Diego. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast, and today's conversation about the intersection of food systems science, climate, and And Conflict is a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. Now, before we dive into the conversation, I know that many people who registered for this conversation today ahead of time were asked to identify some drivers of conflict that you believe are aggravated by climate. Many of you responded to this question, and I'd like to read some of your answers. Food insecurity land degradation and natural resource degradation, water scarcity and drought, human displacement, social and political drivers. Now, I think the diversity of answers to this question suggests something very important about the relationship between climate and conflict. On the one hand, we know that there is some relationship, but on the other hand, we don't always know the exact or precise contours of that relationship. A piece of that puzzle though is certainly food security. And one of the key questions that we will be unpacking today is how do we integrate food security and food systems science into research and policy conversations about climate and conflict? What kind of research is needed and what can policymakers do to better address the linkages between climate, food systems, conflict, conflict prevention, and peace building? Well, to answer these questions and more, I am very pleased to introduce our panel today. Joining us from Montpellier, France, is Dr. Sonia Vermeulen, Director of Programs CGIAR System Organization. Welcome, Dr. Vermeulen. And joining us from Sweden is Dan Smith, director of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Welcome to Dan. Okay, so let us begin. Uh, again, thank you to Dan Smith. Thank you to Dr. Vermulen. And Dr. Vermulen, I'd like to start with a question for you. I'd like you to help sort of define the terms of this conversation a little bit. When we say food systems science, what do we mean?
1: Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And hello, everybody. Um, I hope you can hear me clearly. Mark, please do feel free to call me Sonia as as we move through through the conversation today. Um, So food system science, what do we mean by that? Perhaps a good analogy is the Indian parable um, of the six blind people encountering an elephant. Uh, One thinks it's a snake, another a wall, another a spear, for instance. That's how we have traditionally looked at food systems, with agriculturalists looking at one part and nutritionists looking at something else entirely, with marketing people, those interested in value chains, uh, the piece in between. We've made a great deal of progress in recent years by trying to join all of these pieces up. Um, So for me, coming from the agriculture sector, I'll, I'll give you an example. So what we're hearing a lot of is that the world needs to eat more healthy diets and so therefore we should uh, grow more healthy crops. We should uh, grow uh, more fruit and vegetables and better, more nutritious varieties of each of these. But when we actually take a food system perspective, we see that what actually reaches the consumer is so heavily modified by the processing that happens in between that a lovely healthy apple may end up as a piece of um, sticky candy. Um, We really need to be engaging as an agriculture sector with with that processing sector, understanding what is driving them, what they are taking from agriculture and then delivering to a consumer. So so that's essentially what, what, what we mean. And it goes far beyond the actual food product. And we need to think about what food systems are delivering um, in terms of jobs, in terms of gender equality, in terms of environmental impacts and so on. Um, So to give you an example there, just to really explain how food systems drive food security, it's for the people who are most food insecure in the world, it's often not the actual food. It's the income and livelihood that they're getting out of the food system. So let's take uh, somewhere that has a long history of conflict, like the south of Sudan, for instance. There, the predominant livelihood is is around keeping livestock. So that could be camels, also small livestock, goats and so on. The value of those goats um, in, in the lives of those families is much less in terms of the meat or even the milk that they're giving it's about the income that they generate. So most of those goats are slaughtered or taken live further north, particularly um, annually at the time of the Hajj and, and sold into further northern countries. And it's that money that is providing the food security those, to those households rather than the meat and milk per se.
0: So, so can I ask, uh, it's obviously a very complex and integrated you mm-hmm. know, system and process. Uh, How do you understand the impact of climate on that process, on food systems?
1: So climate change, uh, climates are changing, and we have already seen a lot of impact. So there are some impacts that have already happened. Uh, There have been measurable impacts, for example, on the yields that we've seen of major crops around the world, such as maize. But we're going to see a lot more transformative change um, in the coming decade and in decades to come. And I think that's what I'd like to draw attention to. So we're looking at here, you know, radical disruption in key water basins with extremes like floods and droughts becoming more frequent, glaciers melting, first of all, releasing all of that water into the system, later drying up major tipping points being passed this is what we are seeing um expecting now in the future with forest fires out of control releasing that carbon triggering even greater change ocean currents reversing monsoon systems in west africa and india changing very abruptly now what does this mean in terms of food production i, I could give, give you of course a number of other examples there you know coral reef die back uh, sea sea level rise and so on but what does it mean in terms of food I think we need to understand now that within even the next decade, we're going to see entire regions having to move out of sometimes centuries old farming cultures um, and into new climates that just haven't been experienced um, in human history. So really trying to come up with entirely new ways um, of farming and uh, making a living. Um, and indeed, with many people actually having to migrate uh, to to move out of where they're living now, either because uh, temperatures have become impossible to live in, uh, or otherwise farming has become impossible for some reason or another, and of course, in many coastal areas where many of the world's uh, people live in cities, and uh, they will also be displaced. As, as sea levels rise um, and uh, major rice growing areas are, are flooded out. So um, I think what I'd like to express to everybody is we, we have seen some of those uh, changes already and we should expect a lot more of them in the coming 10 years. Just to share a couple of real examples, um, mm-hmm. we're looking at um, across Africa, particularly maize, beans and banana systems um, being... Uh, uh, really compromised um, in, in the next decade uh, with uh, in, uh, exporting banana areas such as Ghana and Benin no longer able to do that. And countries like Zimbabwe and Tanzania where the current stable crop is maize uh, really been uh, looking forward to so, such frequent crop failures uh, that really they will not be able to depend on, on maize as the stable crop any sure. longer.
0: Maybe, maybe this is a good point now to bring in Dan Smith. Uh, you know, Sonia just described a number of ways in which climate and climate change is affecting food systems. You have spent a career studying conflict and the drivers of conflict. How do you understand the impact, the role of climate in driving conflict? And you know, in general, how do you sort of try to understand those linkages and express those linkages?
2: Sure. I mean, I think the f- first good point to start from is uh, something Sonia was just saying at the end there, because in terms of uh, the relationship between climate change and uh, not just armed conflict, but also political instability, what we, ha- we have seen examples of this happening over the past decade and more. The problem is not just what we have seen, it's what we can expect to see. So we need to, in a sense, hold the conversation that we're having in two hands. One is what we know. And the second thing is on the basis of what we know, what we can anticipate. So what we know, and you asked, how do I understand climate change as a driver of conflict? Let me first put the emphasis onto a driver of conflict. That means it's about climate change interacting with other issues in the socioeconomic political landscape. One way to understand this is to say that this is not this is not an environmental issue. No environmental issue is just an environmental issue. All environmental issues are about society and governance and how we as humanity and communities and societies relate to nature. So how that relationship is arranged how whether it's governed well or not is going to decide whether when the climate changes and the impacts are felt, whether those are droughts or floods or sea level surge, how does the government, how does the local community respond? It may respond well, in which case you'll see effectively zero impact of climate change on uh, the risk of conflict. And if it is unable to manage a proper response to those impacts, then you're potentially going to see a really high risk of impact. The second thing to say is that every armed conflict and every situation of political stability is different. So you really have to get into the specifics. So for example, in Syria, before the civil war in Syria, there was four years of prolonged drought. There's been a lot of controversy amongst, especially critics of the Assad regime, about how much blame to attribute to the drought. Don't think about it in that kind of way. The drought led to several hundred thousand people, just short of a million, being displaced from the land and living in poor conditions in the margins of different towns, most of them. One of those towns was Dara, which became a center of the uprising against Assad in the early days. And many of those who were involved were people who had been displaced. They had a whole set of grievances And the drought was not the whole story for any of them, but it was one of the factors which pushed the situation along. In Yemen, you look at Yemen and the civil war which started essentially back at the beginning of this century, comes out of a background of disputes over land and water, which is essentially based on Yemen constantly using, persistently using, more water than is naturally replaced. And those water shortages have built up to really critical situations in many different parts of the country and led to people fighting, led to the strengthening of militias, led to people being available as recruits for the insurgency. That is now a major war because of the instability that came out of, originally in part, a failure to govern a natural resource properly. So Dan, you
0: mentioned a number of places, Syria and Yemen, in which natural resources were not governed well. Is there an example of a potentially conflict or fragile country that did manage their resources well and in so doing arguably prevented a conflict?
2: When the UK first took the uh, issue of climate change, as a security question to the United Nations Security Council in, I think it was 2007. One of the comments which was made was by the Ghanaian representative, who said that in northern Ghana, he could identify that there had been um, climate change, lack of rainfall, poor growing conditions, poor conditions for herders, increased conflict between them. But Ghana is one of those countries which has stayed the right side of the fragility knife edge for a a number of years, and they actually managed to handle that situation pretty well by getting negotiations going between the different groups. Elsewhere in the Niger Basin research, which uh, I did with a previous organization I was with some nine or ten years ago, persistently produced examples where, for example, it had been possible to negotiate a cattle corridor. And a period of time when the herders were able to take their livestock through that land and the farmers agreed to that happening, it was all organized and there was somebody to mediate that and to see it through and to monitor that the agreement was complied with. And then, yeah, there was a potential problem but it had been handled well and it had been resolved. So it, it can be done and you don't need to be a wealthy state to, in order to be able to do it. What you need is to see the need to do it and to put people to work on.
0: And uh, presumably uh, you would also need to understand more precisely what some of these specific drivers of conflict are and what some of these specific linkages are. So so Sonia, I'd like to bring you in and get your perspective as a scientist, and, and maybe drill down a, a little bit, uh, what opportunities do you see for research into the relationship between food systems and climate and uh, conflict? Is there like a particular area of scientific inquiry you think might be most useful to explore?
1: Thanks, thanks, Mark. Um, so. Building what Dan has said, he, he, he's talking about the way that every situation is is different, and this poses a problem for the scientific method. We don't have a neat set of controls versus climate slash conflict scenarios to look at. So, in a sense, the scientific stories that we're building um, are often anecdotal. Um, they may have threads of strong evidence in them. Uh, for example, we I believe, can tell a stronger story in Syria than in some of the other cases uh, that we may be looking at around the world. But nonetheless, we find it difficult to make uh, any very confident statements around drivers and chains of causality, Um, of course, or also because are massive feedbacks and so on. So what I'd like to propose is that instead we focus more in research terms um, on the set of solutions that that we bring to the table. Um, So we we have perhaps two lines, two core lines of research that that I would think um, are important. So the one piece is around some of these uh, future transformations that we might anticipate now. And if we do our science well, we can get a lot more prepared for them. So these could be um, major livelihood trajectories in certain parts of the world. We're already seeing some countries like Nicaragua doing it. They're actually looking at their coffee sector, the huge numbers of people who depend on it, and understanding that that just won't be there in the future and what are the transition pathways from that? And that involves a range of science. It's, it's hydrology, it's obviously the agronomics and so on, as well as all of the political and social sciences that go with that. So they're those major transformation pathways. The other part of it is around supporting people right now um, to be more resilient, um, to uh, meet crises, not with food insecurity, but... Um, with With survival and bounce back um, and those were a lot of actions around what Dan was also alluding to better government preparedness and building people 's um, capacity to to manage risks as this conversation goes on um we can bring in i 'm um, sure uh, between us Dan and i can bring in a number of different examples of that but, but i'll you leave actually. It there for that'd now. Be-
0: That'd be useful. would you Would you cite one example that oh, helps yes. kind of make yeah. this real for for yeah. audience members yeah. who are yeah. not ingrained in this? yeah
1: yeah. so I, th- I think I think when it comes when it comes to managing climate shocks, um, we we shouldn't underestimate the value of information. Um so, for example, um going back to the example of those herders in southern Sudan. They have, one of the reasons that they have been doing badly is because they have such poor market information that they end up um, selling off their animals at the wrong time at extremely poor prices and so on. That they're just not doing well because they're in a poor market information system they're also in a very poor climate information system they're not good at getting good weather forecasts they're not getting information that is usable in any kind of way so being able to use it to know how to move to new pasture areas or new watering spots and so on so i think i think we just uh, cannot underestimate how useful it can be for governments just and and uh, development agencies and and others just to provide more of that um, in an affordable and realistic kind of way. So, for example, across West Africa at the moment, uh, CGIR and its um, uh, uh, climate change program, CCAPS, has been working with a r- wide range of partners there, the, the Met agencies, but all NGOs, just to get uh, near-term climate forecasts out to farmers, using uh, radio stations and local language, uh, just making sure that farmers have at their fingertips not a set of instructions but a set of information that they can use to determine things like planting dates or, or different kinds of agricultural choices that they make. So that builds um, a, a kind of uh, resilience that doesn't necessarily um, cost a, a great deal of money. It's like Actually, can, can I can I bring that also to connect this to COVID-19? Yes, yeah, please, we, <laughs> please. COVID-19 <laughs> is
0: connected to everything always.
1: So, so the more, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: bring it. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, but because when we've seen how, uh, learning from government, how governments have dealt with Ebola, I would say that has also been a problem often of information deficit um, amongst the population. So, uh, around 2014, for instance, um, several several governments put in place um, uh, quarantine scenarios, so um, uh, 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 Guinea and others. And and what happened was that uh, people reacted negatively, there was local conflict in some cases, health workers were were attacked and, and misunderstood. And in that situation, you know, really, just being able to get the right information and and using um mobile phones not as uh, uh, an instrument of developing conflict but one of managing conflict could have done a great deal um to improve the situation and to actually allay some of the conflict and some of the um, actual food infrastructure and transportation issues that were seen there. so i've I've actually been very pleased to see with Covid nineteen some of the um, actually quite imaginative and innovative um, communication methods that uh, Mm -hmm. certain governments and and NGOs and others have been using. Nigeria comes to mind using Mm -hmm. song uh, as as well as all kinds of other public information. Obviously information is the only thing, but I just thought that would be an example I'd I'd Mm -hmm. start with. Uh,
0: So Dan, I'd like to pose a similar question to to you. what specific area of research, from your perspective as someone who studies conflict, do you wish you had more information about in terms of the relationship between climate and food systems and conflict? What do you think is most worthy of future and future study?
2: I think there's plenty to know about, to find out about in terms of specific crop effects shortages of this or that staple food in in different areas around the world but I think that the most important thing to get into and properly understand is is probably more closely connected to social psychology and it's to do with behavior because the the, the key issues are about response to to the impact and Part of what is shaping that response is, of course, as we've been saying, is to do with, with governance and how government works. Actually, there's quite a lot of knowledge about, about that. What it seems to me that there is less, at least as, as I have access to and connected in this field, is to the, to the psychological dimensions of this and to the kinds of decisions that people are going to make. If I can give you an example, a, a thing which we're very concerned about at the moment, Um, Somalia. Average temperatures have been increasing consistently in Somalia for the last um, 40, 50 years, probably longer, since 1960 or thereabouts. Uh, This is a climate change happening. Over the past 30 years, there's essentially been a drought, a serious drought or a serious flood each year. Now, knowledge, I think, and science doesn't really tell you What what is going to to happen in the sense of is it is going is it going to be a drought? Is it going to be a flood? But what we know is that in those circumstances just as Sonia was saying about Sudan people take very very short-term economic decisions including Selling up cheap and heading for one of the the towns or or cities and in those circumstances That provides the opportunity for Al-Shabaab, the jihadi group, to come in and to be providing aid and resources and help and to be recruiting and so on. Now, if we could understand better how and why people are taking the decisions that they do in response to the problems that they face, then maybe we would be able to help them be taking decisions which wouldn't lead to an increasing risk of escalating conflict
0: it's interesting that both you and, and sonia cited essentially communications and understanding behavior of individuals yeah I think, uh, who are most a, impacted. I think there's a
2: reason for that as soon as you start talking about uh, resilience if you go from one sector to another if you talk about you know resilience as far as food security is concerned but then you add resilience as far as conflict is concerned. And you think about resilience if there is a conflict in your near neighbourhood. Or resilience because there's some kind of an economic shock, or some uh, ter- terms of international trade turn against you, or an investment flight, whatever it is. Once you start to generalise across the different sectors, I think you come down to two factors which are at the core of resilience as a general quality. One is knowledge and the other is cooperation. Right? People, communities, societies, governments, international organizations, it doesn't matter what level you pitch it at, they need to know, we need to know, how to absorb new information, disseminate it, stay calm in the face of it, act upon it, and then, importantly, act together upon it. So, Knowledge and cooperation are two key elements all the time. The technicalities of building resilience, are different in each of the sectors, but there's this common quality which comes across it. So I wasn't at all surprised to hear Sonia talking about information and to hear myself copying her.
0: Uh, so I'd like to remind people to submit their questions uh, via the Wova app using the Q function. Uh, get your questions. I have a few more questions for Sonia and Dan. And my next set of questions is around how do you take the insights that you have gleaned from your research and move policy? How do you take these conversations into the policy realms and into policy conversations? So, Sonia, for you, what opportunities do you see for perhaps cross-disciplinary collaboration that brings in the views of other scientists, as you have said, but also brings in policymakers who work on peace building and resilience and conflict issues? What, What avenues do you see for that?
1: So, Mark, I think this is one area where there's enormous demand from policymakers. We are not needing to reach out to them. They are reaching out to the scientific community. So our challenge is more about understanding clearly the questions that they're asking and providing information back to them in, in forms that they can use. And obviously, when you're talking about climate change and food systems, there's a lot of uncertainty that in there. Um, a lot is dependent on how they themselves respond in any situation, as, as Dan has eloquently explained. Um, and so, therefore, a lot of that job in um, translating between the research side and the policy side is, is around the uh, appropriate expression of probabilities, uncertainties, laying out scenarios, if you like. Um, but certainly, it's, it's less about the relationship building. That, that tends to be very strong.
0: And and Dan, yeah, I know you recently spoke to the Security Council on climate and conflict issues. Can you just describe for the audience what mechanisms exist perhaps within the UN system to ensure that conversations about the impact of climate on peace and securities are are there, are are, are front and center? A- and from your perspective, what else is needed uh, from decision makers to improve how? they can understand and deal with climate-related conflict issues.
2: Yeah, I think the conversation about this is is quite, it's not just starting, but it has a long way to go before we could say it's really well established among the UN agencies. So in some agencies, it's quite strongly established. And obviously, UNEP, the UN Environmental Programme, is doing a lot. There's also a lot in World Food Programme. Um, UNHCR is including these kinds of issues into its assessment of risk all, all the time. But what was lacking was the the traction in the UN headquarters and in the UN Security Council, and it, that remains controversial. Um, so when I I briefed the UN Security Council in. February that was actually about Somalia peace operations, which I just mentioned just now, and then I spoke again at an ARIA formula debate, as it's called, a more kind of loose and open discussion. Um, when would that have been? In, in in April, and we did it virtually, we did it via Zoom. And both times, there's the majority of member states of the Security Council are saying, yes, good, we see this as important, we want to think further how to address it. But there are two or three who are saying, This really doesn't belong on the Security Council, or it's not actually a real issue. And those states, um, they have enough influence that that conversation goes slowly. But what was able to happen, which I think was really important, was about um, 20 months ago, in the autumn of uh, 2018, a new unit was established inside the Department of uh, Political uh, peace building and political affairs. And this sounds quite nerdish to be kind of zeroing in on this very small unit of not nearly enough people for handling this enormous global issue. But this is the first time that in the UN headquarters there has been an institutional home for handling questions about the relationship between climate change and insecurity and about the risks that can result from that. Mm-hmm. So there is the beginnings of this happening. Now you ask what more is needed and the answer is basically more. <laughs> more. More conversation, more people working in the climate security mechanism. The Human Development Report, both next year and the year after, will be addressing these, these kinds of issues that we're talking about now. And this just needs to keep on pushing forward because we really need to embed this quite deeply. I and mean, it's seen from my point of view, right, If the, when I say my point of view, running a peace research institute, if the climate change and related issues like food insecurity are not taken seriously by security planners around the world, then their agenda is going to become increasingly unmanageable during the 2020s and into the 2030s. And the tragedy would be that we would be able to say, Yeah, but there were all these missed opportunities. There are these these and these things that could and should have been done back in 2020 even before but since we're in 2020, this is a good time to start and get going
0: So I'm glad you focused on uh, that unit within the UN having reported on the UN for 15 years I can say affirmatively that process equals outcomes at the UN. So the bureaucracy is is moving in the right direction which sounds sounds good yeah um so i have a final question that i would like to put to you both we just have about one minute so uh, consider this to be an elevator pitch you know one of the reasons we are having this conversation is to break down the silos between food system science climate science social science around peace building conflict and resilience Uh, in order ultimately to have an impact on policy. So what recommendation would you give or recommendations would you give to potential funders, governments, and policymakers, many of whom are presumably listening to this conversation right now, uh, for steps that they can take to be proactive in seeking to understand the connection between food systems, climate, and conflict? And just a a quick one-minute answer from each of you, if possible, Uh, and I'll turn it over to to Sonia. Uh,
1: I would urge you to think now about the big changes that could happen over the next 10 years. So those could be around, for instance, the uh, opening out of new sea trade routes, The complete change in the areas of the world that have the comparative advantage for growing different crops and therefore the impacts on how people are eating, what they're eating, how much it costs and the knock-on from that um, to conflict at, at all levels and displacement of people and so on. So do use the information that we have at the moment to think a decade into the future and to think about some of these big transition events, moments, types of change. Thank you. Thank you. And
0: Dan, question to you, just one minute. What would be your, your elevator pitch in this realm to potential? Okay, three government?
2: things. One is focus on risk and opportunity. That's where research and understanding and capacity in governments and international organizations need, needs to get much stronger. Second. Focus on actionable items. What is it that can be done? We know there are all these interlinkages. How do we act upon the interlinkages? Everything that makes this issue seem more complex because it's all connected is an opportunity. Because it's connected, if you op- work on one thing, you'll have an effect on the other. And the third one is one of the problems about this. A lot of people get the point, And then the question is, so what do I do? Who owns the action? Stop thinking about it like that. What is the action that needs to be taken? Get the right people around the table, convene those meetings, have those discussions and come to the conclusion.
0: Thank you. And so the action that needs to be taken from me now is to turn it over to Diego for questions from the audience. So uh, Diego, over to you.
3: Well, thank you, Mark. And thank you to the panelists. It has been a very interesting discussion we had a series of questions uh ranging from the role of gender uh, management of uh, natural resources and uh, as well as the current institutional architecture and security let me just start with a question for for sonia is that uh in in the in the big realm of food systems and natural resource management uh are the scientists uh aware of their of their impact of the research beyond what we call our science and the, the transcendence of this into the social systems and, and the institutional architecture of, of security that, uh, that uh, Dan was mentioning just now. Is that something that still needs a little bit of a uh, promotion and, and an exercise on awareness?
1: Yes, of course. I'm, I mean, getting science into policy decisions Does always need um, does always need more work, more attention, more dialogue, Um, but I think there are also some great examples of successes, and these are you know particularly at the national level and sometimes at at the regional level as well. Um, I think, for instance, um, in Africa over recent decades, uh, we've seen. Uh, much more professional use of, for example, uh, famine warning systems, all of the systems that we have around uh, measurements and projections of of food security and where humanitarian um, attention needs to be put and so on. So uh, we've we've seen a number of advances and including advances in the kind of joined up thinking um, that, that Dan and I have been talking about.
3: Thank you very much. And for Dan, one uh, one issue is that we, we were talking about information gaps and the fact that uh, there are certain elements that might need better assessment of the information or use of that information by the actors that have the ability to create specific policies. Um, you just mentioned that in the climate mechanism, we need more and we need more resources. Could you chart for us a set of, key uh key benchmarks that can be achieved with the support of donors and international community to expand this uh, the area of, of action of the climate mark mechanism and the security architecture in a general general sense by that i'm referring uh could we just add scientists into the climate mechanism? Could we just figure out a way of ensuring that there are more fluid channels of communication? What are these three things that we can get started so that people that will be, for instance, in the Security Council next year can have an agenda of work? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I guess that people in the climate security mechanism may well be watching this, and if they disagree with me, they can send me emails afterwards about it. But I would say if you take that mechanism as a starting point in order to be a little bit specific in trying to address that question, right? one thing is their channel to the Security Council, the briefing material that goes to the Security Council so that when it's thinking about renewal of a peace operations mandate or a crisis here or a a refugee crisis there, they know... That they can rely on receiving an assessment which includes uh, climate and the environmental background into the story. One of the things which I said to the Security Council in February, which seemed to get a little bit of a kind of reverberation, was that um, if you—it's not to say that nature is the whole story, but if you leave nature out of the story, then your narrative is incomplete. So. That's the, that's the thing that they and we more generally need to learn. So one thing would be to be sure that the climate security mechanism's connection to the Security Council runs efficiently and that they've got the capacity to be de- dealing with that. The second thing is to understand the climate security mechanism as an enabler for the rest of the UN system. You have the um, conflict advisors, uh, peace and development advisors in uh, in UNDP you have UNEP, you have analysts and so on, all, all through the different agencies, the Rome agencies, the Geneva agency, and so on. So how can the CSM connect with them? It shouldn't be trying to do all of that work or it'll get to be this humongous bureaucratic outfit. And then the scale of the bureaucracy will kill the energy and the creativity. But if it's, it gets to be a bit bigger and becomes the enabler and the facilitator, of that work through, uh, through the UN architecture, then I think we'll, we'll be making some real progress because actions in the different country offices and the regional bureaus and so on will all be based on much more and deeper knowledge.
3: Thank you very much, and I would just add to that that uh, you know science partners like us, at CGR, we stand ready to be their key interlocutors on these kind of engagements. You know, it's an important element to 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 keep that in mind. The message goes through. Uh, for for Sonia, one one question is on the uh, on on the elements related to the the way we conceive climate change. I guess you you mentioned something about causalities and. And yes, it has been a debate. What is the cause of what? And if we cannot prove it, therefore, we don't say, well, we're not ready to put it on the table, therefore, uh, we might say it's not happening. That's not that's not the case. But somebody said that you should spend most of the time defining the question. Once the question is well defined, the answer comes easily. And I guess in in the issue that we're trying to address here is perhaps is there space to new ways of conceiving how this whole food system handles and interacts with the issue of, uh, of, uh, of conflict. I'm, I'm referring for the idea of, of looking at food systems from a complexity perspective, from a systemic perspective. And the question would be, in food, in food science and food systems, in the management of natural resource resources, do we have now all the places, all the instruments and the tools to engage in that way? Do we have the handle of the data? Do we have the the understanding of of mechanisms within uh, natural resources, so that we can explore how to define the problem in a different way, perhaps from the perspective of complexity or another one similar to that?
1: This is this is an interesting and large, uh, potentially philosophical question, but perhaps we can also consider it in a in a more practical realm. So I think. One, one of the interesting things that has happened over the past five years has been um, attempts to, to move from climate modelling exercises to very integrated uh, modelling that uh, combines looking at energy scenarios, biodiversity, land use, food and, and climate collectively. And what's useful about a tool like that is that it can really allow us to to ask some of the big, the really big questions um, around, for example, um, if 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 we were to uh, achieve uh, global food security um, for everybody in 2050, uh, coupled with uh, the Paris Agreement. What might that look like in terms of how much land we dedicate to uh, biofuels, um, how much uh, land is under natural forest and so on? Um, that kind of tool is now being used by policymakers in countries like uh, Brazil, for instance, as a leader here. Indonesia is coming up just to kind of play out amongst stakeholder groups um, some of the possibilities and some of the big Trade offs that those involve. Um, obviously, in Brazil, uh, questions like that involve massive threats to, for example, the, the cattle, um, beef, and dairy industries. And uh, these kinds of scientific tools do open out that space um, for a, a much clearer debate um, with everything on the table. Don't know if that helps, but um, it helps answer the question, but just to give you a taste of the kind of scientific tool. Um, that, that was now being deployed at the policy level.
3: It gives us a measure of what we have at hand in terms of tools and possibilities, and uh, charts a little bit of the agenda of research that can help us connect with the other side. Because uh, that for 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 Dan it's certainly uh, we were talking about the CSM, the climate the climate change mechanism, but uh, the, perhaps we can also refer to the fact that there might be a need for institutional. Uh, arrangements at the regional level as well. Um, We were recently in a discussion in in Dakar uh, and uh, there was the possibility of having a similar mechanism for the African Union. And perhaps something like that can be applied in in other places. So how do you see the interaction between that particular thing in New York with their potential counterparts in Addis Abeba or maybe in other parts of the world. Is there room for that? Is there space? Is there
2: a need? Yeah, I think the answer is an unqualified yes, both to space and need. Um, the African Union is actually doing some quite interesting work at the moment, both in terms of its policy and its thinking, but also in terms of what it is supporting you know, on, on the ground as, as as far as it can. And I think if if what is happening in the Peace and Security Commission were to institutionalize itself into that kind of AU climate security mechanism as probably as part of the Peace and Security Commission. Uh, I think that that would be, you know, a really interesting step forward. The degree to which that is possible in other regional organizations, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, The the African Union is um, in one kind of situation with its history with the big headquarters in Addis Ababa with the strong sense of a very broad Social economic and political agenda that the AU has been working on for years ASEAN um, and the the South Asia regional um, uh, Coordination organization, they're in they're in different situations So we may not be able to replicate it in some sense systematically um, all across the board, but it. It certainly is possible in many places, yeah.
0: Well, and Diego, you. have time for uh, one more question.
3: Okay, well in that case I will ask a question for the two of you. A quick one is, we have basically stated the need, we have looked at the different instruments in terms of the how, uh, we clearly have a sense of the why. Um, in your perspectives, the when, when this can be started, when can we get engaged and connecting uh, CGR and other environmental and uh, food science institutions to work hand-in-hand with the entire, if I can use the term, security architecture. From us, we're ready, and uh, I just speak on behalf of the CGR, and many other actors are already lined up on that area. From your side, what does it take, and when can we get started? Sonia? Sonia?
1: Well, Diego, like you, I'm a staff member at CGIR, so I I defer to your judgment on that. But I I think to add to what you've just said, um, I I do think that this year and the global health crisis we're in now has, like um, many crises before it, provided a, a window that's opened for that kind of attention. I'd like to add an optimistic note to that as well. I think it's also opened a window where we recognize um, that um, social cooperation and behavior change at scale is indeed possible. Um, So let's let's capture that window and use it well. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Dan. Yeah, I I think actually my answer to Diego might be, you know, in many ways, it's already started. That precisely because, as you say, there are many actors who are in, who are in position and who are, who are ready, that means they've been having the conversation we 've been doing the reading we've been talking to each other we've been connecting this institution has moved along Cypri four years ago had almost nobody working on climate change and insecurity questions now it's the biggest team within the institute but that is in in my small area right one Example of the way in which we have started moving along Angela Merkel at the Munich Security Conference. I think it was last year not this year Spoke about started her speech by saying we live in the Anthropocene epoch And all our security and foreign policy thinking has to be within that context So there's all kinds of signs that this is beginning. So the answer to the when is now and the, the next step is to recognize those green shoots and tend them and, make, and help them to grow.
3: Well, thank you both for these uh, very illustrative answers. And uh, yes, I guess we can call this a great call to action. And uh, we're very looking forward to the other webinars, uh, the next engagement. And uh, over to you, Mark. Thank you.
0: Uh, thank you all for participating. Thank you to Dan. Thank you to Sonia. Uh, we, uh, as as Diego said, we, ha- we now have an action uh, agenda. I always like conversations in which we are left with things that we need to do after the conversation is over. Uh, this is the first of a series of uh, conversations that are being taped as webinars and also as live tapings of the Global Dispatches Podcast. Uh, To subscribe to the Global Dispatches Podcast, just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can engage in other conversations similar to this one around issues of world affairs and policy import. Um, I am going to sign off by saying thank you all. Thank you, uh, Dan. Thank you, Sonia. All right. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Diego and the team at CGIAR. To register for future events as part of the series, please just click on the link in the show notes of this episode or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. I would love to see you there and I'm excited for what this series has in store for the future. All right. See you next time.
2: Bye.